Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's something strange that happens with homelessness. There's something strange that happens in war. And there's something strange that happens in prisons, which are these very extreme sets of circumstances. You've done all three. You get to see the absolute worst of society and the absolute worst mm. that humanity can do. But at the same time, you get to see the most incredible humanity. The, like what people wow. are really, truly capable of in these sets of circumstances. Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here bringing you an episode that I hope will be very memorable for you. I cannot think of a better guest uh, for Changes than Chelsea Manning, our guest this week. Chelsea's name, gender, anonymity and freedom all changed irrevocably in her 20s. But she is most well known for one particular event. It was 2010. Chelsea was 22 years old and working as a data analyst for the US Army. She was stationed in Iraq. But on this day, she was back in Virginia on leave. Chelsea went to a Barnes & Noble bookstore and uploaded half a million classified US military documents to WikiLeaks using the Barnes & Noble free Wi-Fi. She has always claimed that she released the information for the public interest. Upon returning to Iraq, the repercussions were swift and brutal. Prior to her trial, she was kept in military prison for three years, 11 months of those being kept in solitary confinement. This involved being in a windowless six-metre cell for 23 hours a day. Initially, she was on suicide watch, meaning she wasn't allowed to sit down. She was allowed no possessions or bedsheets even, and at times was sometimes forced to go without even her underwear. Unbeknownst to her, Chelsea, in the public sphere, was a divisive figure. Some celebrated her for trying to expose human rights abuses in the military. Some condemned her as a traitor. After those initial three years, she was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Soon after the sentencing, she came out publicly as a trans woman. In 2017, seven years into her sentence, Chelsea sent President Obama a letter pleading for her release. Obama listened and finally commuted her sentence. Chelsea has since written a memoir called readme.txt, referring to the file name she used for the leaks. There's also a documentary called XY Chelsea on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. Chelsea now lives in Brooklyn and joined me back at the start of September to talk through the monumental changes in her life. I started by asking her how the first time on deployment in Iraq changed her perspective on the war and the world. So I considered myself to be a very educated and informed citizen, right? Yeah. You know, I wasn't necessarily political. I like to say that in my late teens and early 20s, my politics were leave Britney alone. Um, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't, I was kind of apolitical. I didn't really have like, even whenever it became the centerpiece of the national conversation within the U.S., which was, you know, the war in Iraq is spiraling out of control at this time. It's 2006, 2007. And I'm in my moment where I don't know who I am, right? I, sure. I'm trying to figure that out. And I had just gone through this chaotic journey 
of the last three or four years of, of my late teens, which were very chaotic. I was lived in the UK for a period of time. I lived with my father for a period of time. I didn't have a home for uh, mm. several months. Uh, and then I finally found that I was sort of living with my aunt, but I didn't, but I was like just trying to ground myself. And so I was really looking for purpose and meaning and uh, I was kind of lost. And so I sort of latched on to this national conversation. And I was like, oh, well, you know, there somebody needs me somewhere, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe. Um, so I, with some back and forth between myself and my father, um, who I was trying to rekindle our relationship with because we'd call it kind of fallen out, just trying to like reestablish our relationship. And he was a Navy guy. So he was just like, you should really enlist in either the Navy or the Air Force. I wanted to participate in that, but I also knew that the real action in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was in the uh, Army and the Marine Corps. And so I yeah. went over to the Marine Corps Recruiting Center, and the Marine Corps wasn't there. They were off that day. So I ended up uh, going into the Army <laughs> Recruiting Center. So arbitrary, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, and I did that, be, you know, because our Army, you know, Navy and don't get along yeah so, so i was yeah. in a sense like trying to one out my dad a little bit so it's kind of still doing roughly what he wanted but you're away kind right of. yeah and i really enlisted in the military to to grapple with things that i did that i didn't know how to grapple with so i, I basically just sort of threw them off onto the military shoulder you know like in, in okay. my in my mind which was to you know like have structure and have a, you know the the military sort of tell me where i need to go and uh, how to live uh, so that way I wouldn't have to deal with, you know, things like, you know, like who I am or uh, where I belonged or where I fit in the world. Because these are all like burning questions that I had within myself. Like, why do I have this feeling that the gender that I present as publicly and every day in my in, in my line of work, why does this feel so uh, uncomfortable? Why did I have this like, you know, this real gut feeling of just sort of like this can't be right. Um and then mm. I'm faced with, you know, the life and death every single day. Like it was just, uh, I often like to say that, you know, in, in a war or a combat environment, um, there's sort of a cheapness to life because it becomes this, it just, just sort of becomes a statistic. Like so many people living and dying every, you know, on, on, such, a, on yeah. such an unfathomable scale every day that one of the things that's really changed for me fundamentally is I don't really care what other people think anymore mm. or what society's mm. expectations are anymore, mm. you know, because it really doesn't matter. And I think yeah. even afterwards when I, you know, which we can talk about later, I went to prison for seven yeah. years, uh, yeah. you know, like that, that, that really so solidified even, even further and crystallized in me. And so whenever it comes to the sort of the change of how I perceive the war in Iraq, I didn't know. I, I really didn't know. And even the training that was provided for us, you know, it was very statistical, yeah. it was very sort of methodical, it was very abstract. It took an understanding of what was going on, an untangling, and a real on-the-ground sort of understanding. Like, you have to see faces and see neighborhoods. And, you know, I, I remember flying in um, the Black Hawk helicopters, which we would tr be transported to and from, mm -hmm. And looking over at, at neighborhoods of eastern Baghdad and knowing the neighborhoods and being able to physically see it, to smell it and, t you know, to know that there are real places and that there are real things. And also to know, you know, sort of read between the lines with reporting and understanding like what like what's what's really going on, including the things that aren't necessarily written down. 
um, to have that experience um, and to have that really jarring like processing period between what the public knew or thought they knew or understood versus the reality and how like gigantic this chasm was like that discrepancy right and 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 i find it funny because people now understand it better it was tainted before, but they, if because it's had this sort of taint removed from it, you for, yeah. we've forgotten that it was once, you know, glossed over and varnished in such a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you be more specific about those discrepancies in terms of what the American public were being told through the media and what you were seeing? Like, what was the difference there? I can't. That's sort of the, the complexity is. Uh, he, that, that yeah. exists here is I did it once and I got in trouble and I can't do it again or I'll get in trouble again. But I can tell you the feeling that I had and it was alarming. It was very jarring. When I, even when I was on leave or even when I was talking with people back home, you know, it was like it was like they had forgotten about it by this point because there was a new administration because this was a this was seen as like George W. Bush's war, right? There's sort of right. the perception among the public that this is. George W. Bush's war. And we were in the Obama administration by this point. So it was the early Obama yeah. years. And nothing had really changed. Like, really? Right. Like, you know, it was like the policies hadn't really changed. The on-the-ground reality hadn't changed. Just sort of like the perception of it had changed. And that I found that very jarring because, like, I would be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I've been deployed to Iraq and I've been deployed to Iraq for, for months now. And people would be like, oh, we're still there? There was this deep sort of feeling of like, oh, no, there's something really wrong here. Mm -hmm. So zooming in to the 8th of February 2010, Tyson's Corner Center, a mall in Virginia, which you visited whilst on leave from your job, uploaded those files, those classified files. Um, Which almost didn't happen. I know. I mean, it's, it's literally like something that Jason Bourne, the start of your book, you're like, oh, my God, will she get those up in time? She's got to catch her flight. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's funny because people, you know, often tell me like, oh, it's like a it's like a thriller. And I'm like, well, in the moment, it felt pretty like normal. Like, you know, it was like how? Because it's life, you know, like life is complicated. Life is messy. Life is jarring. I mean, it was like, did you feel fear when it was happening? I mean, it's 12 hours. So there's plenty of time to feel all the feelings while you were uploading it. But like, how did you feel going through that? Did you feel a change as that information was off your shoulders and in the world as such? I think I really wasn't able to process any of it. You know, mm. as all of this was happening and you know like because I and I didn't really like everything happened so like from my perspective like everything was just sort of a problem and I was like okay I have a problem that's right in front of me this problem needs to be solved which is dig car out of snow right you know mm. t- transport car to you know another location look for internet you know it was like very yeah. sort of like objective based and scenario based yeah. you know and I yeah. like you, you kind of tell like I have this you know I still have this sort of, sort of like military like you know, sort yeah. of like objective, yeah. like following yeah, regimented it's very, plans. It's very procedural, right? You know, and, yeah, so, yeah. and so like that's how I get through things. Like that's how I got through mm. whenever I, because eventually like, I, went, I went into prison and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, then became like a, 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 you know, surviving solitary confinement, you know, like I need to eat food. Mm. I need to, you know, uh, I need to drink water. And, you know, like that, that that's my brain. That's where my, where my brain is. And I latched onto this. All of the right. emotional stuff, which I'm sure is there, 
but you know i i i've had a thought i've had a therapist explain this to me like that i i went through long periods of uh, alexithymia which is like an inability mm. to like grasp or understand the emotions that you're feeling because you're just right. you're just making everything into a puzzle or a challenge and mm. uh working through that and it really wasn't until very recently probably the last five or six years that i've really been able to disentangle some of that some of that let's go um to young chelsea in oklahoma and and focus on this first change that we ask every guest on this podcast what is the biggest change of your childhood please that would be my parents' divorce. Okay. How old were you? I was, I think, 10 or 11. And what kind of a kid were you? Uh, so I was, uh, I was really into math. Um, I was really into science. Um, I was an academic high achiever. Um, right. You know, I, I was on the basketball team. And I wasn't the greatest at sports, but I tried really hard. So that, that became, like, where I put a lot of my eggs in the the like value basket because um you know the the reality was is that my life at home was very difficult so what did home you had a sister right i had a sister. a sister so yeah. my sister had moved out by then though i still okay. saw her regularly um but she was living she was living on her on her own and in, in a different town um okay and so my parents were still the bedrock of my existence really you know yeah and i had this assumption that not, not only was our home the way that every home was, like it was all the same, you know, like I was like, oh, every kid mm -hmm. goes through this existence, but also that it was not changing, that it was, you know, that I would have my mother be at home and my father would come home from work or be traveling right. and come home. And that was the way it was always going to be. And yeah. the jarring thing was that was whenever my parents started to fall apart. Uh, the relationship started to fall apart. My mother had a, a suicidal episode and my father um, found a new uh, relationship and my mother wanted desperately to move back to the UK. And so I had all of these seismic life changes happen in about a year to a year and a half period of my life. Right. And how did that uh, like practically manifest? What happened next for you? Where did you live? What happened? So I ended up living in the UK, which is a foreign country for me at this time. You know, I've Wales, right? It was Wales. It was, it was rural. It was rural Southwest Wales, right? You know, which is mm. you know, I, lo I love Pembrokeshire, but you know, it's it's definitely a jarring change from rural Central Oklahoma. Uh, and so I had these very jarring changes, like culturally, um, you know educationally um the expectations that were on me like everything had just gone completely off the rails in my life and your dad was gone so you moved to wales with your mom so that's important to say that it was just you and your mom at this point it was so it was my mom my mother yeah. and uh and you know i guess it was a package with you know my mother's like sisters as well so I had okay I had a number of aunts do you mind talking about the relationship between you and your dad as well because I mean you mentioned there about trying to kind of you know win his favor after an argument what was that like you and your dad and how did the relationship ebb and flow as such th throughout this time um 
when I was younger, I, I always just wanted my father to love me and to respect me and to like mm. tell me you're doing good. You are, mm. I'm proud of you. And he just wasn't capable of that. And no matter how hard I tried academically, no matter how well I did at, you know, building something or working on something or achieving something, no matter what achievements I had, it just never really ever was enough. He was very hypercritical. I, I remember I built this gigantic Eiffel Tower out of Lego pieces. Mm. It was like three feet tall, which, you know, at like six or seven years old was this achievement. And uh, I think it was like seven or eight years old. And, he, you know, he's like, oh, it's the wrong color, right? And to that, for somebody of that young, yeah, you know, that's yeah. just like gu a gut punch. It's an emotional yeah. gut punch to like, the first thing that you get after this massive accomplishment is, mm. is just sort of a, an immediate criticism. And, mm. and you know, the sub, we, we had good times. And I want to be clear, like, right. my father was very good. He was very, he was very good at sitting down and teaching me things. Like, he taught me how to use oh. computers. He taught me, you know, he, he was very good at, fit, at, like, helping with homework. And that was why I wanted to achieve so much academically. Because, you know, he would, he would, like, walk me through things and, like, pique my interest in things. And was really good at sitting mm. down and, and, and walking me through problems and, and problem solving. But, like, any kind of emotional support or availability just not there no not there and he was a drinker right increasingly yes um right. I, I would say that both of my parents um you know became much more independent on alcohol as i was getting older mm. and it became very abusive at, uh, you know it got to a point where my father would even be violent and aggressive you know being drunk and being like extremely unpredictable you know and mm. this was around when i was like 10 or 11 and so this is like around the time whenever my parents started to split up you know they both they both just fell into the bottle yeah having done the work now you know as a as a 35 year old woman and kind of worked through so much and gone to therapy have you figured out how those years have kind of manifested in you and, and how to kind of move through them as such. Sure, you know. Um, yeah. Now whenever I achieve something or I accomplish something, it's my accomplishment, right? You know, mm. that's something I had to learn. It wasn't for to impress my father, right? It wasn't yeah. to get, get his attention. It was, you know, oh, I've done something. I can yeah. feel proud uh, in myself of that. You know, because like I can be super self-critical. Like my, it's almost like my father like taught me how to find mm. the problems in things rather than you know, his, you know, very glass half empty mentality. Yeah. I've learned how to. I've I've had to be like, oh, I'm see, viewing this as like I'm being kind of pessimistic or hypercritical. I should yeah. look for the good. So you moved to Wales, then you moved back to America um, after a couple of years, right? Yeah. Um, you then moved into your father's house with his new partner. That didn't go so well. And then there Did was not. some time when, when you were homeless. I, reading the book, I just felt for you so bad because you're trying, you're working in a, what was it? Ab Abercrombie and Fitch or something? like. I a, had two jobs. Starbucks? Yeah. I had Starbucks was my main job, yeah. Yeah, and then you were trying to go to college. 
Yep. So I was, uh, I, I counted it at once and I was, uh, either doing work or school for over a hundred hours a week. So very little sleep, <laughs> very little sleep, trying to make ends meet, trying yeah. to do both. And it wasn't sustainable basically. Is that, is that safe to say? Yeah. I mean, I often joke because people, people often say, oh, well, you know, you were in the military. And I'm like, well, the hardest job I ever had was actually Starbucks and doing a, a closing slash opening, right? You know, where you, <laughs> you close one night and you open first thing in the morning, right? You know, when did I get to go out? When did I get to go have fun? Yeah. So at what point did you leave, end up leaving your father and his partner's house? And what were the circumstances of that? I was working at a job and I would come home from work every day. She had a, she had a son who... You know, had this very yeah. regimented schedule because of various, you know, sort of um, neurodivergences that he had um, that I'm not terribly familiar with and I never got a chance to really mm. learn. But, you know, I I was fairly independent of that. I, you know, or so mm. I felt. Um, but there was always this, this clash between like, okay, like I need to go eat and I need to cook because it's like 8 p.m. She was like, well, you can't cook mm. in here. It's past 8, 8 p.m. and you can't be do- make, doing this and that, doing this. And I'm like, well, I have to eat. Like I can't not eat. So I, I kept pushing and I kept pushing these boundaries and uh, it eventually led to a fight. Um, and she like aggressively sort of was screaming at me one day and I, you know, and, and I yelled back at her. And mm. this was around the time when, when my father had prostate cancer. Okay. So he w- had just had, um, he had just had surgery to remove uh, a tumor. Uh, and so he was out of commission, essentially. And she, I feel like she used this time when he was okay. know, sort of drugged it's Heavily up, medicated, um, yeah. Heavily medicated and unable to, like, understand what was going on. And she, like, accused me of, you know, like, like th- of, like, threatening her or something like that. And, um, you know, it was like, it was an argument, but she used that opportunity to call the police mm-hmm. and bring, you know, and in Oklahoma... And this is where the legal system, this is my first sort of uh, yeah. encounter with uh, the American legal system in all of its complexity and, uh, and, and arbitrariness. Um, yeah. If a, there's a domestic call, there has to be somebody removed. doesn't matter if, if, if it's frivolous or not, there has to be somebody removed. Wow. And so I was physically removed from the property and uh, I never returned. And uh, all I had was a truck yeah. and just stuff that was in boxes and... As much as my sister would have loved to have taken me in at the time, you know, she had just finished college. She had just gotten married and, you know, they were struggling. They had just gotten started. I left and I went on this journey uh, across the central United States for the next six or eight months. And ended up in Chicago. I ended up uh, landing in Chicago, yeah. And it was funny because I kept on going to bigger and bigger places because I was sort of seeking that anonymity. I mean, at this time in Chicago, you write about discovering the club scene and really finding a home and, and a kind of yeah. sense of community in the gay clubs there. Uh, the music, the people, like just really, uh, can you tell me about kind of how that felt for you um, after a very turbulent teens, I suppose? Yeah, well, you know, after everything and after losing essentially everything, because you know, yeah. I had nothing. Yeah. I was in, very um, vulnerable, like living in a truck, basically. At this age, my my brain didn't process that as like I'm in danger or I'm at risk. Yeah, I process it as that as this is an adventure. Right. This is life. Yeah. This is you know exciting. 
Yeah. And so I I really latched on to this scene because anything could happen, you know. And, you know, sure, it was scary and it was uncertain. And, you know, uh, there were day, days and nights when I was like, oh, how am I going to how am I gonna eat or, or do anything? But there was also, like, the sense of, like, adventure as I'm getting, meeting new people all the time and I'm getting to go and experience explore new places and experience mm. new things the the artistic nature of the scene and the sort of like the commute the the, the the complexities of the community and yeah uh the sort of the style the fashion the the music and you know i, I mean despite the fact i was living as a fairly destitute person i didn't dress like it <laughs> you know i got i had a chance to i i, I, I had a chance to be yeah. to, to live and and, yeah. and express myself in ways that i never was able to before right Right. That's so important, isn't it? It's just it's giving you this freedom to... Yeah, when you're not paying rent, you could definitely spend money on clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So then you join the military. We, we know you ended up joining the army. We know about that leave. Let's talk about what happened next. Um, I mean, your, your adult change is kind of after that period. You know, that change from being someone who was well-intentioned, well-meaning, working in the military, taking your job really seriously, to then being arrested yeah. by that same military. And as you said, put, put in solitary confinement, not knowing what's going on, what's happening to you. And, and very, being very surprised by that. You yeah. Know, I think one of, the, one of the things that I often like have to remind people is that that had never happened before right because people now have this like because now they th they look at me or they look at ed's case edward snowden or, yeah right and so they, they they look at these sort of big cases after 2010 but the, i mean i don't i didn't know who daniel ellsberg was right mm. and he never went to prison and right? daniel ellsberg was so, another person who like a whistleblower kind of person yes Right from the Vietnam from era, you know, yeah. and I was, and I, I didn't even know about this, like that the, this had happened. So there's this like pre-internet sort mm. of like you know lack of information, uh, this information void that we were in. But like this had never happened before because people are like, oh, what did you expect? And I was like, I thought I'd get in trouble, yeah, for sure. 
but I thought, and I thought it was career ending, you know, which is everything. When, when, when that's all you have is yeah. your career, like that's everything. Yeah. So like that was the end of my life. But yeah, the solitary confinement, the, the lengthy prison sentence, the, the, uh, the lack of connections, like all of that had never happened before. Yeah. Um, and it was very unexpected. Yeah. Because it's just not how it had, it had panned out um in other cases you know other cases prior to that you know if they were out, out out of jail you know they were had lawyers and they had teams and things like that um so i kind of expected my experience to be similar like i would get into a lot of trouble but that would be trouble as in like am i gonna have a job after this am right. i gonna be is right. anybody gonna ever employ me again um right. i'm never gonna have a retirement like those are the kinds of scary realities that i was gonna have to get grapple with so to this day i, I, I struggle processing like what happened to me yeah so you were in a, a solitary confinement for 11-ish months um then you were sentenced to a 35-year sentence how old were you when you were sentenced chelsea so I was 25 years old and i had been in prison for three years so um, you know like so you thought you might get life pro without parole if you were accused of treason correct and you weren't well, uh, the, so there's aiding the enemy, which is a quote unquote treasonable offense. But got we it. got we got past that. Like, yeah, I was acquitted of that charge, yeah. which, again, way outside the bounds of anything I was even fathoming before that. But, you know, that that was off the table. Um, so, like, I, you know, I had numbers. So I was like, I was like, this is a range. I can work with numbers and you can calculate from that. So it just became sort of a math problem to me at that point. Hmm. But like the idea that I would walk about in my 30s. Uh, or my 40s was out was far outside the realm of possibility so and, but I, I had come to expect that so you know by the time that happened it was like I was like okay like you know like I got some numbers I got this is what I gotta do like you know here's like here's here's how I'm gonna try to now I just gotta figure out how I'm gonna get through the next like 20 years 20 25 years because there there is a mandatory minimum I lived under this and uh, this sort of expectation like it's gonna be a long time probably not going to get out of prison, but what I can do is I can improve my conditions while I'm in there. And I can make my life in prison Bearable. as livable yeah, yeah. as possible. Yeah. So it was at that moment, like after you were convicted, that you then decided to come out as trans and say, I am Chelsea. Like, this is who I am now. Am I right? Well, I wanted to do it sooner. It probably wasn't until two, three months after I got incarcerated that I even knew that people knew who I was right okay because you know, I'd been that isolated um but around that time when I was like oh like people know me as like a different name and a different sort of background and also people I read I read this like New York Times piece that people were describing me as like a loner and yeah. I'm like who is this person they're describing <laughs> right you know <laughs> I was like oh like the like I'm a I'm a party person yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what are we talking about here uh like where's the club where's the music uh like it was, but there was a sort of jarring sort of thing where i'm just like okay like it's what i want to do but it was through my legal counsel who was just like this is about your survival right now this is not about like your access to care and things like that i'm like okay like but as soon as that's out of the way yeah. as soon as i know where this this court martial and this sentence lands this is what i need to get done and so i was very adamant that um i wanted it i, I wanted to come out I wanted to seek care. I wanted to, you know, get get the get the transition care that I needed. But um, it was pretty clear that the right. every single resource possible needed to be um, need, needed to be focused on um, the court martial process 
Um, but as soon as that was out of the way, I was like, yeah, this is my priority. Quality of life was my priority. Of course. So being able to live as yourself. And when you made that statement and said, no, this is who I am. I'm Chelsea Manning. I guess, how did things change for you? Was there a reaction? Did people react to what you said? And how did it change how you felt, I suppose? I had no idea how much my story and my experience would resonate with sort of other trans people or that there was a trans community because like that notion was was fairly recent, right? And so this yes. connectedness was new and this sort of understanding mm -hmm. this like people reaching out to me was brand new and I was a bit taken aback at first by that like, oh, people have similar experiences to me. Wow. Um, uh, but, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, uh, yeah, nothing changed. Like, uh, yeah, mm. you know, prison was the same rigmarole as it always was. But I was struck on reading your story at, at the courage that you had in order to present as a woman in prison, you know. Why? Because you're surrounded <laughs> by men. I don't know. I, to me, that automatically feels like you're you're vulnerable, like, you know, presenting as a woman. I feel like people would like... I don't know, want to attack you or something. This is my <laughs> instinct. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I, um, I feel like I'm far more vulnerable if I didn't, right? If you didn't. Yeah. Okay, exactly. I see. You know, like if you don't, like, especially in prison, like in an environment where you're around the same people every single day, you're already doing that in the military and it's that times too, right? So I like to say, right. imagine secondary school, except you can't leave and there's no classes, right? All the drama, all of the complexity, all of the personalities become very known. And if you're not who you are and not presenting as who you are, they, everyone can see that. You could see that about I'd each other. I'd say it would be exhausting as well. Yeah, just exactly. To, to have to lie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, like it, it was, it was easier for me to be who I was. And it was easier for everyone else because like, oh yeah, like, this is, this is you quite clearly you know yeah um so yeah I, I, and how do people how do people like take to to you like you were transitioning in prison you were the first person in the military prison system granted access to hormones one of a handful of the military at large yeah. this was you know relatively new you know it was as a concept within military prison yeah and well you know it you know it was certainly a fight um but you know whenever it came to like because I, I think people have a very incorrect perception of inmates right you know and the priorities of right. inmates right you know, inmates were like, yeah. you know, like people are like, oh, were you scared of inmates? So I was like, no, not really. Like they were, you know, what, like, how do they react to it? And they're like, they're like, oh, you got one over on the prison system. You went up against the system and won. Like, that's great. <laughs> like, this yeah. is like, it's the solidarity that I think that's missing from the story yeah. here of the prison system, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is like, you know, like we're all in this together. And yeah, of course we want, we want to see more rights among prisoners. And yeah, you got, you get one over, like this sort of like David versus Goliath aspect mm. becomes so important to the story internally. One of the battles that I didn't win was, you know, the ability to grow my hair. Um, and it was, yeah. it was hard because, you know, it was like everything else is like, this is the one thing that I, that the prison system didn't want to relent on. And the reason why they didn't relent on it was because they were afraid that they were going to allow, you know, indigenous inmates to have to grow their hair or they were going to have to provide religious exceptions for people okay. so okay. they stuck yeah. on this point and it was and i had solidarity with the other inmates who wanted the same right you know for a different reason for a different reason but like yeah. you know they, they were like oh yeah we're gonna make this as pain we're gonna make this as painless as possible so you know i i got yeah. hooked up with a barber who would stretch the rules to the very limit 
you know, only would use shears, would not use buzzers, you know, like somebody who would yeah, like, yeah, yeah. who would like, you know, make it as comfortable an experience as possible, you know. Um, and you described someone um, threading your eyebrows, which is a very touching moment. Yeah, because he uh, he needed the skills to do that and needed to be qualified yeah. to do that because under Kansas under Kansas barber official, you know, mm. certification, you have to learn how to do that. So, yeah, you get to practice, mm. you know. As every year goes by and you live longer as a free woman, those seven years will free? feel smaller and smaller. Well, oh my God, Chelsea. Okay, now we're getting yeah, this. And this is, but this is what I grapple with, right? You know? Um, okay. You know, which is. How, how do you mean? So like in terms of what? Well. How are we not free? You know, and that, that's, that, that, that's what I mean is like, I, you know, w whenever I was living on the streets, right, of Chicago, right, you know, it was the same sort of mentality of yeah. like, you know, like, oh, this is an adventure. This is it was how I perceived the situation. You know, I felt more free then than I've ever felt at any point in my life. And that that holds to this day. Right. You know, and is that, and why is that? Why is that the obligations that I have as an adult, um, the mm. the rent, the bills, the uh, expect the social mm. expectations that are placed on me and now I have these social expectations that are placed on me as a public figure like oh you should sure. you should be doing this you, you should have these social media accounts you should have a TikTok you should do YouTube right, to, right, right. you know like you should you should do this you know uh, I mean it's very it's very philosophical you, know, you can get into like postmodern philosophy but like just in terms of like my own life experience I'm like yeah like what is what is free and why did, why is it that when I was reading and I was learning the legal system in the law library and I was working in a wood shop. Why did I feel more free in general population in prison? Not solitary confinement, but when I was in general population, why why did I feel more free and more fulfilled mm. than I do as an adult mm. who's paying rent and bills and having to do all of these like social obligations? Why is that? Mm. Just talking about how you felt about being in prison, there's a scene in the amazing uh, film that you can watch on Amazon Prime, X, Y, Chelsea, of where you're called to, to be told that Obama has commuted your sentence and you will be coming out of prison. And you're not whooping. You're not like, woohoo. You're like, oh, but I've got all my friends here and, 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 yeah. and it's going to be weird. And, you know, you can palpably hear a sadness in your voice. I kind of like, oh, can you talk to me more about, I suppose... You know, you said you felt free, but no, I didn't. I didn't feel free. I didn't feel free. I want to be clear. A, a sense of free. Yeah. A sense of free. Is that? Yeah, a, I felt fair more purpose. Like a sense of freedom. Got you. I felt more fulfillment. I felt more yeah. sp spiritual connection. And also, I presume a sense of community in there—a very like solid sense of community. Did you have that? Yeah, like I could just meet any random person, and we could play spades and have conversations, and I could learn something. And did about you have? Did you have meaningful relationships in there? Like, did you make, are you still in touch with people from there? Or uh, no, is, they're, is they're very strict about the rules on that kind of thing. And most, most right, people, most people aren't like me. They don't get severed. Like they, they end up in yes, the system yes. and they continually have to be a part of the system. So yeah. even when somebody goes to a different facility, you almost never, you very rarely hear from anyone ever again. But sure, am I nostalgic mm -hmm. about, about those moments? Yeah, absolutely. As Solzhenitsyn observed, you know, like my, it's a microcosm of our society. And I, I think that's true. There's something strange that happens with homelessness. There's something strange that happens in war. And there's something strange that happens in prisons, which are these very extreme sets of circumstances. You've done all three. You get to see the absolute worst of society and the absolute worst mm. that humanity can do. But at the same time, you get to see the most incredible humanity. 
the like what people are really truly capable of in these sets of circumstances Well, let's get to the biggest change of your adult life. You kind of cited two changes that came back to back. What were they? Uh, well, they were my first time being released from prison uh, into the public mm-hmm. and then being a public figure. Both at the same time, which must have been a complete head fuck. Uh, yeah, well, it's funny because this is uh, a part of the story that I think gets over glossed over and overlooked, which, you know, again, is a part of the story from like the start in Sol- when I was in solitary confinement, which was like, I don't know. Anybody knows I'm here. Right. And it's like, yeah. all, it's like apparently all over the evening news globally. Right. It's like international yeah. firestorm. And I'm sitting in there and I'm like, I wonder what's for breakfast. Right. You know, I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same sort of thing where it's like, I have no idea how to do a television interview. And yet I'm expected to know automatically how to do the kinds of television interviews that people prepare for years, uh, that sure. spend entire careers trying to, to, to be prepared for. And I have to learn how to do this in 10 days. There was this moment where I was released from prison and, and I thought, oh, I'm right off into the sunset. Like literally, like okay, like I guess this is that that that's that chapter of my life over, and this we can fade out. There's a quote in the book. You say it did feel surreal to be free, but it also felt like what I'd been dealing with for the previous seven years would never be over. It certainly isn't over now. I can never leave it behind. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm. I I think that it will fade, much like uh, much like a scar. I like to think of it akin to a scar. You know, like nice. it will yeah it will heal. But it will always be there. It will fade, but it will always be there. How has it changed you ultimately, do you think? You know, that period of time in prison, how has it manifested in you as Chelsea now? The memories will fade. Has it changed you, kind of the essence of who you are, how you look at the world, how you move through the world? Sure. Um, When I felt alone and I felt like I didn't have guidance, I now encounter so many people who are lost and needing guidance or whatever and I don't I don't feel that anymore I don't feel lost anymore and I think that's real and I think that's deep and that's that's powerful is I don't feel lost I know right where I am and I know right right where I need to be am I a little off course from time to time sure but I know who I am I know what I enjoy I know what I like and what I don't like I know what my true ambitions are and I found like a real sense of who I am and I do feel a little sidetracked by some of the obligations that I have, both as just being sort of a, a you know, a quote unquote free adult uh, in the world, yeah. and as a and, and as a um, and as a public figure um, from time to time. But I, I get the sense, especially when I'm interacting with people and I get to talk to people, that I I feel way more grounded than everyone else. So that brings us really nicely into the final question of change, the change you would still like to make in your life moving forwards or that you are working on. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, mm. I, I've, I'm, I mean, I've accomplished so many of the things that I've wanted to do um, in my life. You know, I ran out of dreams to fulfill, right? <laughs> Weirdly enough. Um, you got to make some new ones, Chelsea. I mean, do I, you know, I, I've, I've had this struggle, you know, um, for the last year or so. I mean, I think that stability, 
I mean, like, that's, I mean, like, and I said this before, which is, like, stability is, like, what I'm really after. And I'm starting sure. to get that. I'm starting to get a taste of that stability. And I want it. I want that stability. And I know that that's going against the grain of sort of, like, everything else that's going on in society as, as things become more unstable. But, like, I, I want a piece of that stability and a bit of that peace of mind for as long as I can for myself. And so I can heal. Sure. And so I can find my place in all of this that isn't attached to stuff that happened 15 years ago um yeah you know i i that that's that's mainly what i've been what i've been doing so it's it's more it's more finding you know that internal piece which i've finally sort of made a lot of progress on in the last Mm. few years and now i'm turning that into okay what do i want in my home what like what what kind of relationships do i want and it goes back to the very beginning of this which is after my parents divorced i lost that stability and that's what i mm. want back and i i can do that now are you still in touch with your parents are they both still around my mother passed away in 2020 uh sadly oh, i'm sorry um, uh, i have not seen my father in over a decade i and i haven't mm. heard from him or spoken to him i think in like about five or six maybe seven years probably since i was released that's not because of something on my part, right? Sure. Um, I mean, I've sort of let go of the fact that I'm probably never going to have, like, a really good relationship with my father. But, like, you know, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't talk to him. But um, mm. even other members of my family who I do talk to, on a, you know, on a more regular basis, don't really know what's going on with him. So he's still mercurial. So He's out there. And, you know, you've got a long life ahead. You never know. Um you seem so well and buoyant and just in such good form and it's so wonderful to have this time with you and to share those ideas and for you to share your story I really appreciate that because I can't imagine it's fun going back there over and over again so I do appreciate your generosity in doing that thank you so much thank you thank you so much to Chelsea Manning As I mentioned, if you want to find out more about Chelsea's story, read her memoir. It's excellent. So beautifully written, as you can imagine, incredibly gripping, such as the kind of huge drama of her life. Um, It's called readme.txt. And you can also watch her documentary XY Chelsea on Amazon Prime or Apple TV. Do please rate, review and subscribe to Changes. It is so appreciated. And if you fancy sharing it on social media too, that would be amazing. The more people we can get listening to these episodes, the better we want to tell our stories far and wide. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. And I'll be back next week with more. See you then. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.